Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Where KSL offers Utah deeper insights on the news. Host Boyd Matheson divides rage from reason and elevates the conversation on issues crucial to our community. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Welcome back to Inside Sources. I'm your host, Greg Scordis, filling in for Boyd Matheson today. Um, when you think of 2021, and we're, what, three days from the end, uh, there are a lot of stories that come to mind. You think about the withdrawal from Afghanistan, the fight over the debt ceiling, the new Omicron variant, um, a lot of other things that sort of stole our headlines for the year. But there are a couple of things that you may not have been aware, very aware of that uh, we want to talk about during this next uh, segment or two. Did you know that the, Uni- that the United Kingdom Parliament uh, held President Biden in contempt? Yep, the UK. Uh, they voted to hold President Joe Biden in contempt for his withdrawal of American troops from Afghanistan and for some of his comments that he made about Afghan soldiers who fought with the U.S. military. As you know, uh, after the United States pulled out of Afghanistan, the Taliban regained control after nine days. And President Biden at the time said American troops cannot and should not be fighting in a war and dying in a war that Afghan forces are not willing to fight for themselves. A member of parliament, Tom Tugendhat, took issue with that. And so it is with great sadness that I now criticize one of them. Because I was never prouder than when I was decorated by the 82nd Airborne after the capture of Musakala. It was a huge privilege, a huge privilege to be recognized by such an extraordinary unit in combat. To see their commander-in-chief call into question the courage of men I fought with. To claim that they ran. It's shameful. Those who have never fought for the colors they fly should be careful about criticizing those who have. Wow. Um, those who have never fought for the colors they fly should be careful of those who criticizing those who have. Um, deserved, un- undeserved, in- be interested in your comments on that. But President Biden certainly took a great deal of criticism for the way that he handled the withdrawal of our troops from Afghanistan. And perhaps some of that was deserved. Um, But um, Parliament decides to hold him in contempt for what he did and a pretty powerful speech there. Another thing you may not have been aware of, um, the House voted to repeal 
the authorization for use of military force of 2002. And what's happened is that the authorization for use of military force has largely gone away from uh, Congress and has been ceded to the president for some time. And that's happened more and more. And there was actually a, a resolution about that in 2002. Um, there was a a proposal toward the House. The bill was only one line long, and the vote was 268 to 161 for. Uh, interestingly, uh, joined by our own um, uh, Senator Lee, uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, Senator Murphy of Connecticut, uh, a, a diverse group of, of, of our legislators who got behind this bill and said, look, war powers should be back in Congress. And um, this is what uh, some of the argument was about that. The bill itself is very simple. It's one line. It says it will repeal the 2002 authorization for the use of military force. Now, what that is, we have to go back to just after September 11th. Just after September 11th, Congress passed the 2001 AUMF, which mainly concerned with terrorist organizations and those affiliated with al-Qaeda that perpetrated the 9-11 attacks. The very next year, Congress passed another AUMF called the 2002 AUMF. Now, this focused specifically on Iraq, and Iraq's at the time threat of having maybe nuclear or biological weapons, and was designed to topple Saddam Hussein's regime. That, of course, happened. The Iraq War was declared over around 2010 or 2011. And fast forward another 10 years, the 2002 AUMF is still on the books. And so what this bill did narrowly, um, just targeted removing the 2002 AUMF, um, Congress taking that back, and so the White House would no longer have that specific authorization. I should have introduced the speaker, the the person who we just quoted, and that was Anthony Markham from the R Street Institute, who was explaining exactly uh, what this bill would do, and that is that it would provide that Congress has war powers and taking that back from the president, which is something that we've done really for for generations, sort of given more and more and more uh, to the president, taking that away. Is that is that backlash to what happened in Iraq? Is it backlash to what happened in Afghanistan? Who knows? I mean, is this something that's even good for our country? Uh, but it's certainly something that they did. It's something that's been passed. Um, the 2002 law is still on the books, so this is um, just really just uh, looks at the White House and says, look, you don't have some of that same authorization that you did in the past, and maybe that's maybe that's for the better. Um, certainly it's a bipartisan, bipartisan support, and we'll see how that goes. Number three, stories from 2021 that maybe you haven't been too aware of. Um, we talked uh, with Rabbi Avremi Zippel, and I actually am friends with his father, uh, Benny Zippel, uh, from the Chabad Lubavitch Church of Utah. And he told inside sources that the rise in hate crimes isn't just a result of geopolitical tensions. Let's hear what he had to say. Uh, when when the vandalism happened, there was almost like a natural pivot to, well, you know, there's a lot of raised tensions in the Middle East. You know, this event happened in the midst of the Israeli-Hamas uh, conflict back in May. And so there was almost an effort, you know, to downplay it to a certain extent. You know, well, this is probably spillover from what's happening out there in the Middle East, which I think is vastly unhealthy. It's really unhealthy for us 
to go to a place where somehow vandalizing a place of worship of any faith is, you know, more digestible and more acceptable because, well, there's geopolitical conflict halfway around the world. So that's probably what this is. You know, now if we really want to grapple with this problem, we need to acknowledge what the heck is going on. And that is that it's become okay to deface places of worship. And that is a major problem across the board. You know, people don't maybe don't remember that in 2021, in May of this year, a swastika was sketched on the window of the Chabad Lubavitch Church in at, at the synagogue in Salt Lake City. Um, at the time, tensions were high in Israel between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And we have seen a rise in hate crimes in recent years uh, as a as a criminal defense attorney, former prosecutor, you see those more and more than we've ever seen. In 2021, hate crimes exceeded the number of 2020, and it's the highest uh, rate of of hate crimes we've had uh, since 2001, which was following 9-11. So um, is our legislature going to jump in on this? Are we going to do something to uh, sort of beef up or give more teeth to our hate crime statutes. They're already there. They're already pretty powerful. Uh, who knows where that's going to go? But it's a, it's a sad story from 2021 that we didn't talk about much, uh, but something we should be thinking about and in going into the next year, trying to decide how we can alleviate this a little bit. One story that I think is really interesting, governments are getting into the Bitcoin business. Governments are getting into cryptocurrency this year. Miami Mayor Francis Suarez said that he would take his paycheck 100% in Bitcoin. He also said he wanted to expand the use of cryptocurrency across the city so that residents of his city could pay fees and taxes and receive their salaries in digital currency. El Salvador, the country of El Salvador, became the first country to adopt Bitcoin as an official currency. This Bitcoin, this cryptocurrency uh, really is taking hold. And I think it's a matter of, uh, it's a big train coming down the tracks and and uh, we're either on it or we're not. United States lawmakers are looking to regulate cryptocurrency. And just this year, Congress introduced 35 bills focused on cryptocurrency and the blockchain policy, which is the way that cryptocurrency is gathered. Um, Natalie Brunel, host of Coin Series, told Inside Sources that it's a big deal that governments are endorsing Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies? Well, you know, I think that there are several advantages. I mean, Bitcoin is a decentralized technology. So it's really a statement by a government to say, we support this disruptive and emerging technology that can't be altered or manipulated by any one actor. Um, governments, you know, right now on a national level, we're printing money, we're expanding the money supply, and everyone is feeling that inflation. And so for a government to be so progressive to say that we support a technology which has a fixed unit of account, which we can't expand, that none of us have control over, is pretty surprising, if you ask me. You know, it's surprising if you ask me, too, because there's always the problem with Bitcoin that... Um it, it was. I think that a lot of people use it as a way to hide assets, to hide uh, income from uh, the IRS, for example, to not have money that's reported. So how we regulate that and how we're going to do that in the future really is going to take some doing by legislators, uh, by, by uh, 
policymakers, uh, the fact that the, a country, El Salvador, has uh, adopted Bitcoin as an official currency makes you think that uh, maybe that's something we're going to have to uh, we're going to have to deal with, and maybe uh, maybe some way that we're we're going to adopt that much more into our our financial psyche. Uh, another thing that kind of came under the radar in 2021, we were trying to find ways to encourage people to get vaccines. And some states, I guess about 20 states, uh, tried what they called vaccine lotteries. A study by the University of Colorado, Denver, said that none of the 19 vaccine lotteries raised the vaccination rate among those states. They looked at 19 lotteries and 19 different states and determined that, quote, no significant association was found between a cash-drawing announcement and the number of vaccinated vaccinations administered after the announcement date. So vaccine lotteries didn't work, and no surprise there because I think people – get the vaccine because they want to get the vaccine and don't get the vaccine because they don't believe in it or find that the technology, maybe they're just uncomfortable with it right now. So uh, putting a financial hook on that hasn't seemed to work any more than um, requiring employers to uh, to do that with their employees, to, to require that with their employees. Um, it, some the, the study from the University of Colorado Denver did conclude that incentives that pay with certainty, in other words, not not a not a lottery, but just uh, you will give you X if you get the vaccine, may have worked better. And they also found that those who are hesitant to get a vaccine may be influenced by misinformation, so that incentives don't change their behavior anyway. I mean, we all thought a year ago that we would be at this sort of herd immunity by now, and we're not. And with the Omicron variant. Uh, the Delta variant, the two that we just saw in the last year, and certainly are going to be more next year. Uh, and we found that, uh, I mean, we're we're kind of tapped out here in Utah at about 60, 65%. And I don't know that we're ever going to get much higher than that. Third, fentanyl became the number one killer of young adults. That are people ages 18 to 45. I'm glad that 45-year-olds are young adults. Anyway, that's, uh, that, that became the number one killer last year. As some of you may not be aware of fentanyl, it's a powerful synthetic opioid. And fentanyl deaths surpassed suicide, COVID-19, and car accidents in 2020 and 2021, accounting for 79,000 people dying in that age range in that period of time. It's a major problem in Utah, which has been trying to deal with the opioid epidemic. Fentanyl is is a synthetic opioid that is available it's pretty pretty readily. People have been known to import it from, from China. Um, it's much more powerful than the oxys that we typically uh, assume as our, as our opioids, um, and it can kill. And Make no mistake, we are still in an opioid crisis in this state. Uh, Inside Sources was able to interview Rebecca Hyde, a recovery services manager at the Huntsman Medical Health Institute, who also shares my wife's name. That was kind of weird to see that Rebecca Hyde on there. But here's what she had to say. It's a major issue in Utah. Um, Death yeah. from fentanyl doubled from 2019 to 2020. Um, in January through March of 2021, the Utah Highway Patrol reported a 900% increase in fentanyl seizures over the whole year of 2020. Um, 
And where we're, how we're getting here is that in response to the opioid epidemic, that the government, you know, various entities have put restrictions on how people can access those drugs. And because that squeeze has been put on the opioids, then the problem's going to jump to another substance, and fentanyl is that substance. And unfortunately, fentanyl has very much filled that void. It is a a drug that is in in really a, a they say the fentanyl crisis in in Utah. That's sort of an understatement. Um, Rebecca also explained how a fentanyl ad- addiction is treated. The help is absolutely utterly available, and I think that that's what people really need to realize: is that a they're not alone. Mm-hmm. B there are services that can help them. Um, and, you know, depending on where they are on the scale of use, they might actually have to go um, into a patient, into an inpatient hospital or a facility to do a medically supervised de- detox. Um, and then depending on how they do with that, maybe they could get outpatient treatment. Maybe they might have to do some residential treatment for a while because what you really, really have to treat is the underlying cause of the addiction. You know, and I work with police officers a lot, Highway Patrol, Salt Lake City, Salt Lake County, and other jurisdictions, and it is now commonplace for officers to carry these these, uh, drugs that are used to to reverse the effects of fentanyl immediately that are used to reverse the effects of a of of an overdose almost immediately and that's something we didn't expect to have in our police arsenal we didn't expect to have that in our in our firefighter arsenal um i know that even just working as a, as an emt on a one of the local ski resorts which i've done uh we now carry that and uh, you know what are we doing? I mean, we we've have a we have a cure now for these overdoses, and it's readily available. But like she said, the the woman that we just heard from, Rebecca Hyde, um, you've got to treat the underlying cause of the addiction. And opioid addiction is almost it's it seems like one of those things that is incredibly difficult to treat. It's one of those things that's very difficult to to get people off of. And even when we get people detoxed, they go, they go into a, a detox center or sometimes it's jail and they have no access to their fentanyl or their oxys or their opioids. And you would think, wow, you know, they've been, they've been in jail for a year. They've been in treatment for six months. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything it was violent it was senseless and i will never understand it i will never accept it i'm amy donaldson and unfortunately we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives but what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt in a new podcast the letter we relive tragedy but only so we can hear the rest of the story the struggle to reclaim lives the realities of grief and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow the letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.